The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight, returning to the program, is Father Joseph Greenwell. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the assistant pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father Greenwell. How are you? Good evening, Thomas. I'm doing well. Thank you. Great. Also joining me and Father Greenwell is Father William Jenkins. He is also a member of the Society of St. Pius V and the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church. Father Jenkins, how are you? Fine, John. Thank you. It's nice Great. to be invited. Yes, thank you. Thank you for being here both. Uh, Reverend Fathers, tonight we return to our treatment of the mysteries of the Holy Rosary, and we are brought to the fourth joyful mystery, which is the presentation of the Christ child in the temple. And I thought that perhaps it would be conducive to our discussion <clears throat> if I began by reading the gospel that is appointed to be read for the Feast of the Purification. Uh, this is taken from St. Luke's uh, second chapter. This is verses 22 through 32. And it reads thus, And after the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they carried him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male opening the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according as it is written in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was in him. And he received an answer from the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Christ of the Lord. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he also took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word in peace. Because my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Reverend Fathers, why is it that the the uh, this feast of the presentation of the Christ child in the temple is so celebrated? What is the great significance uh, of this event? Uh, why why was what our our blessed mother and Saint Joseph did? Why was that any different than uh, than anything else that? that all of the other Jewish families of that time did. It, you know, it, it says in the gospel that it was written in the law that the, the firstborn son uh, was who opened the womb of his mother was to be presented in the temple. So why why is this something special? Why is this something different that, that uh, St. Joseph and our Blessed Mother did? Father Greenmont. Well, the law, after having given birth to a son, a woman was not permitted to enter into the temple until 40 days after the birth of the child. The child had been circumcised on eight days. And then the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph brought the Christ child to the temple to present him. It was the Mosaic law that the firstborn son had to be given back to Almighty God. And so Mary and Joseph brought the Christ child uh, to the temple to offer him back to God as was prescribed by the Mosaic law. And in doing so, they were to offer gifts to God. If they had means, they would offer a lamb and 
doves to, to the to God. If they were poor, they would offer two doves to our Lord, as was the case with Mary and Joseph. The lamb was offered to God as a holocaust, and the doves were offered to God as a sin offering. Although Mary had no sin, she did this to comply with the law, to show all mothers and all Christians that they too should comply with the law. Even though our Lord was not subject to sin, uh, he did choose to suffer with the rest of mankind. And so Our Lady, in uh, comparison or in imitation of Our Lord, she too chose to fulfill the law, which she was not obliged to because there was no sin upon her soul. Okay. Uh, Father Jenkins, I would like to read a, a short uh, passage from a sermon. Of I'd like to mention a few things sure, about that sure. very question, Tom, yeah. if, you, yeah. if you would make, indulge me in that. Sure, go for it. Okay. As Father Greenwell mentioned, the idea is to, in a sense, ransom the firstborn son. Mm -hmm. In our Lord's case, that would not be possible, in the sense that uh, as the Son of God, he had come to accomplish a divine mission of making reparation to the insult of sin to the Father, and also, of course, offering his life as a sacrifice for us. So a, a holocaust of a lamb offered for him, in a sense, to redeem him, uh, was a kind of an, an in interesting divine way of uh, stating what uh, that our Lord himself was the lamb who had come to be offered, and that no lamb could, as it were, redeem him. So the offering of a lamb as a holocaust was not going to redeem the Redeemer. The Redeemer himself was the Lamb of God, as we read, who would take away the sins of the world. Um, another important aspect of the whole thing, the, the whole episode of the, uh, of the uh, presentation of the temple, though, is that we see our Blessed Mother carrying our Lord into the temple of her own arms. She's, She's carrying him into the temple, so she's introducing him into the temple. And when we meditate upon this, uh, this mystery of the rosary, we should think about what would be in Our Lady's heart at that time as she is carrying him into the temple, a temple that had been built for him to welcome him, in which he should be Lord, <clears throat> in which he should be adored. And, um, you know, perhaps Our Lady foresaw the... The moment when our Lord would be entering in Jerusalem with the crowds crying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is him, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, <clears throat> those accolades would soon give way to crucify him, crucify him. So Our Lady must have experienced some very powerful, as we would call bittersweet feelings about bringing her, her divine son into that temple for the first time. And she would have offered in the woman's court the sacrifice that Father Greenwell so beautifully expressed here. <clears throat> but we also see something else here, and that is, <clears throat> this is the first time we have it prophesied to Our Lady that <clears throat> her son would die, and that the sword would pierce her heart, that the thoughts of many hearts would, um, would be revealed. So here is our Blessed Mother, and she is hearing that prophecy of the fact that our Lord had been set aside for the redemption of mankind, a light of revelation, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too, for all mankind. 
So uh, again, when we talk about our Blessed Mother's part in this, bringing the Christ child into the temple, we have to see her receiving that prophecy also, and the significance uh, of that prophecy to her, knowing that uh, this was the future for her, for her mother's heart, as it were, to um, to be pierced, to be pierced by the sword, sure, this great sword of suffering. And that's, uh, you know, where you put all of this together in this mystery of the rosary, and uh, it gives us a great deal to meditate upon when we pray this, this rosary. Mm-hmm. And Father, Father Greenwell spoke of, of the offerings that, that were to be made, and, and you, you say how the, uh, you know, obviously our, our Lord cannot be, cannot be ransomed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it almost seems as if what the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph did, and what our Lord obviously consented to, it wasn't exactly necessary for them to do. So that this required a, a tremendous amount of, of humility and obedience to God's law. And uh, it, it seems that those perhaps are the two, uh, the two leading components of this, of this mystery, would be the, the humility and the obedience. That was. Well, it was necessary out of obedience. Okay. Uh, God the Father willed this to be done. And so that was the necessity for them. In the sense, I, I understand what you're saying, insofar as that these offerings were not efficacious in the sense of actually redeeming the Christ child mm-hmm. from his mission as the Redeemer. And that's true, uh, absolutely. But the fact is that uh, they were displaying, St. Joseph and our Blessed Mother were displaying the same spirit of obedience that their own divine, that, that our Blessed Mother's divine son, anyway, uh, would display throughout his life in, 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 in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, too. So that was the thing that united the, the heart of Mary and the heart of Jesus. It was that great uh, constant adoration of the will of the Father. I've come to do the will of my Father. And uh, Mary was chosen uh, to be the mother of the Savior precisely because of that order in her will that was completely ordered to God. She expressed that so beautifully when she prayed the Magnificat. She's saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. She expressed that order in her own soul. So, yes, it was necessary to fulfill the will of the Father, and that was the only thing that mattered mm-hmm. to our Blessed Lady. I would like to read a, a short excerpt. I trust that you agree with that, <laughs> Well, I do, but I'd like to mention, if I may, yes. that uh, we have several times where Christ revealed himself. He revealed himself to uh, the, the uh, human race little by little. He first of all revealed himself to the kings. I mean, of course, the shepherds were there before the kings came, but by, by the star in the sky. Then he revealed himself to the shepherds on, in Bethlehem on Christmas night. And then he revealed himself to... Uh, Simeon and to Anna in the temple, and you ask, what was that first presentation like? It was very quiet. It wasn't a great feast day. It became a great feast day. It grew into a great feast day because the church realized the importance of it as time progressed. But it was a very uh, lonely uh, event that happened in Jerusalem uh, with just people who, who were devoutly Jewish and awaiting the Messiah. Okay, those who were looking and living the life of the of the Messiah to come. Um, so you're pointing out that it was a mere handful of people to whom this was revealed, right? Yes, so yes, just to yes, Anna and to Simeon and perhaps a few others, Our Lady and Saint Joseph and the probably the priest that was there. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, St. Francis de Sales has been patiently waiting here, so if I could read a short excerpt from his, his, uh, one of his sermons that he gave on the Feast of the Purification. Well, he was very patient. That's right. <laughs> he would even patiently allow us to speak. <laughs> That's right. So you can speak. Uh, well, I, I would just like to read this because he, he agrees with a lot of what we've been saying, and he, he expresses the same thought here. And he, he says in the, the Old Law, the Law of Moses, there was a great number of particular observances to which our Divine Master and Our Lady were in no way obliged. Being king and monarch of the whole earth, indeed of heaven, of earth, and of all that they contain, the Savior could not be subject to any law or commandment. Nevertheless, because he was to be placed before our eyes as a sovereign and incomparable model to which we ought to conform ourselves in all things insofar as the weakness of our nature would permit, he chose to observe the law and to subject himself to it. His most blessed mother followed his example, as we see in the gospel of today, which proposes to us the purification of Our Lady and the presentation of our Lord and the temple. And he goes on and he speaks about why this is such a great act of humility. But Father Greenwell, this seems to be a recurring theme and and really all of the, the mysteries, all of the joyful mysteries of the rosary, just this constant driving theme of, of humility. Um, we, we found that certainly in the, the first joyful mystery in the Annunciation with the humility of Our Lady um, and, and consenting to be the mother of God. And then we, we moved on to the visitation where we saw her humility and her magnificat. Um, and then certainly we saw the, the greatest act of humility and, and the nativity of our Lord. And now we again come to this, this presentation where our Lord, um, as St. Francis de Sales says, is in no way obliged to, to submit to this law. And yet he does out of humility again. So it seems to be just the, this very, very common uh, theme of, of humility throughout all of these joyful mysteries. Would you say that that's correct? Yes, the, yes. This law was written for women who had children by men, and the Blessed Virgin Mary did not have a child by men. Uh, therefore, there was no need for purification. Uh, she, she had the Christ child with cooperation of the Holy Ghost. And therefore, she was the only one truly exempt from this law. But it's true, as you say, as Christ uh, subjected himself uh, to the laws of man and things and to the laws of God uh, as an example to mankind. So the Blessed Virgin Mary did so in her humility, as you said. Uh, she was espoused by divine ordination to St. Joseph uh, that the birth of Christ and the Messiah, the Messiah might not appear strange or appear odd. Uh, 30 years later, I mentioned to you the different uh, times that our Lord was manifest. 30 years later, St. John the Baptist would once again make Christ manifest at the River Jordan when he called him the Lamb of God, as Father Jenkins spoke of it just a few moments ago. Okay. Uh, Father Greenwell, speaking of, of our Blessed Lady, I thought it was very interesting to, to read St. Francis de Sales' uh, thoughts on, on the perspective of Our Lady. He said that... Uh, she made this great act of obedience to the law, not because she was obliged to do so, but because she feared even the shadow of disobedience. So what does that teach us about the uh, the, the great reverence that we should have for, for the virtue of obedience? If Our Lady was so, uh, she was even fearful of even the shadow of disobedience. What are your, what are your thoughts on that, Father Jenkins? <clears throat> oh, I was waiting to hear Father Greenwald. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought it was being addressed to Father Greenwald, so I was looking forward to hearing the answer. I'm sure you can both give a great well, answer. Well, I think she's, she teaches us that we should have a healthy fear ourselves of temptation and falling into sin. Uh, by the, that's how I would read it, and that's what I would take away from it, the example she gives us. And if, if as St. Francis, Francis de Sales says, 
she had a fear of even the shadow of even the shadow of disobedience. disobedience. Certainly, we should fear that since our wills are not conformed to our Lord as well as they should be, as hers was perfectly conformed. And as Saint Gertrude, who is considered by many to be the second holiest person, woman in the in heaven, uh, our Lord told one of Saint Gertrude's colleagues that the reason why he delighted dwelling in the soul of Saint Gertrude was because her soul, even from childhood was so perfectly conformed to his own will. And I, I think that we should be careful of that, that, that our souls and falling human nature and the temptations that we experience in things would take control of us. And if we have that fear, we'll be more careful and then staying away from the temptations. Mm-hmm. Father Jenkins, your perspective on that, that question of Our Lady fearing even the shadow of disobedience. Well, what uh, does he mean by the shadow of disobedience? Well, I mean, I, fearing the shadow of disobedience. That's subject to interpretation, and I could answer what I think is meant by that, but sure. I wonder if he clarifies that. Well, yeah, I'll just read the whole passage here. He says that... Uh, <clears throat> well, we have a prayer which talks about Our Lady being free of even the shadow of sin. Mm-hmm. You probably know that prayer by heart. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm, I'm not sure that's well, what Well, I'll, I'll just read his, his thoughts here so we have it in his own words. He says, Our Lady and Sacred Mistress was not afraid of disobeying because she was in no way obliged to the law, which was not made for her or for her son. Rather, she feared the shadow of disobedience. For though she, being all pure, had no need of being purified, if she had not come to the temple to offer our Lord and to be purified, there could have been found those who would wish to investigate her life in order to find out why she had not done as the rest of women. Thus, she comes today to the temple to remove all suspicion from men who might have wondered about her. She also comes to show us that we ought not to be satisfied with avoiding sin, but that we must avoid even the shadow of sin. Neither must we stop at the resolution we make not to commit such and such a sin. Rather, we must fly even from the occasions which could serve as a temptation to fall into it. She also teaches us not to be satisfied with the testimony of a good conscience, but to take care to remove every suspicion in others that will make them dissatisfied by us or by our conduct. So it seems that there's this idea of of, of scandal, perhaps. Evidently, that's what he means by the shadow of sin here. The appearance of sin, or the suspicion of sin. And uh, she wanted to um, you know, avoid even that, that people would wonder that she did not do that. And people would have been scandalized by it, not no, knowing, not understanding uh, what was going on. But of course, uh, God used that <clears throat> as an opportunity for Simeon and Anna to profess faith. And later on, God the Father would reveal to Simon Barjona, Simon Peter, who answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so here in the temple, he reveals to Simeon the prophet and Anna the prophetess that this is indeed the Savior, this is the Messiah, the promised one. So uh, God was going to obviously use this as as an opportunity to... um, to teach, to teach us, because it's written down in the gospel. It's written down in the gospel for a very important reason. And not only did the evangelist who wrote this, St. Luke, who was not an apostle, who heard from others, not only did he consider it important, obviously the apostles who were relating the gospel events to him considered it important, but the most significant thing is the Holy Ghost inspired them to consider this to be a very important event. <clears throat> you notice that uh, the... Uh, Mary and Joseph took the Christ child back 
with them. Uh, well, actually, they had to flee to Egypt after that, and they were in exile for a good amount of time before they returned after the death of Herod and uh, returned to Nazareth. But um, this is basically all we hear about our Lord until he was 12 years old, and then it was in that very same temple that he remained. Well, the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph left to travel northward to Nazareth. Our Lord remained behind. And what was he doing when they returned on the third day afterward? They found him in the temple, in the priest's court, instructing the doctors of the law. He is asking them questions. And then the gospel says he is then answering his questions because they cannot answer them. So he is actually the teacher of the teachers, the doctor of the doctors at the age of 12. And now that he's reached the age of 12, actually, he has a certain status as having having a reached, reached manhood by the law. <clears throat> so this, this appearance in the temple of our Lord, even at his very young age, uh, even as an infant, has tremendous significance. And the significance of the presentation of our Lord in the temple became clearer and clearer as his life went on. The next episode we read about at the age of 12, him staying in the temple and instructing the doctors of the law, <clears throat> and and then uh, his appearances in the temple afterwards, and finally, uh, as you know, his condemnation and so on, the, uh, and the money being used to um, buy Judas's betrayal taken from the treasury of the temple. So uh, the temple does form a very, very significant uh, node, as it were, in the life of our Lord here. So, in any, in any case, to return to your question here, the shadow, of, even the shadow of sin, there's not even the appearance of sin uh, in uh, the part of Our Lady that she could even afford an opportunity for others to take scandal, let alone on her part giving any scandal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Father Greenwald, you know, I, I began the program by, by reading the account in St. Luke's Gospel of the presentation and the, the purification of Our Lady. But if one reads immediately before that, there is the account of the circumcision of, of Our Lord. So is there any kind of significance in the order of these events, Father, where we have the uh, circumcision of Our Lord and immediately that is followed by the presentation of the Christ child and the temple? Is there some kind of spiritual significance to that um, in the sense that perhaps we need to be uh, circumcised, in a sense, cut off from our sins before we are presented to God? Are there any kind of practical applications or practical lessons that we can learn from that idea? Thomas, I think that's a very good point, that we should be purified before we enter into the temple. That is how they did it in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, we're purified in the temple by the sacrament of, of confession, if we have any sins on our souls. Um, I think it's interesting to note that uh, at this time of the presentation, Scripture mentions basically three cities in which our Lord was for a time, lived in or, or uh, was visiting. And st it started with Nazareth when he was conceived. Nazareth means field of flowers. And Christ has all, often been referred to as the lily because of his purity of heart. Bethlehem, as you know, means house of bread, and of course it becomes the food for Christ, the sacramental food for Christians in the Blessed Sacrament. And then uh, Jerusalem, where he, where the presentation took place, means a vision of peace. And uh, that is precisely the reason why our Lord came, to bring peace to men of goodwill, 
upon the earth. He would be the Prince of Peace and the King of Peace. And so we, we see a fulfillment of his mission, uh, the reason he was that he came to us in uh, being conceived purely, being born, and to redeem us and to bring peace to the world through the acceptance of his teachings and his sacraments. Uh, I, I think, to answer your question, I don't know if I can answer it any better. I thought you had very good insight into it about the circumcision and entering into the mm -hmm. temple. Uh, but perhaps Father Jenkins would like to clarify any doubt in our minds. I don't know to clarify, but I would just add that uh, circumcision was a considered kind of a, a figure of baptism. <laughs> and baptism is the first step in purifying the soul and justifying the soul from sin and instilling sanctifying grace in the soul. And then entering the temple signifies that through baptism we can enter the church of God. So, uh, yeah, there's, there, yes, there's definitely a connection there. Uh, yeah. Thomas, you mentioned circumcision. Circumcision, typically speaking, is the first shedding of blood of the male child. Mm. Uh, and, of course, that is very sim symbolic of what our Lord would do, but how also his blood would sanctify mankind. Uh, I can't help, of course, he was God. It is a divine nature and a human nature. Perhaps after Simeon told the Blessed Virgin Mary <clears throat> that uh, a sword would pierce her own heart, that this uh, presentation in the temple reminded our Lord that for maybe 30 more years, the blood of the animals would be sacrificed, and then his own redeeming blood would be sacrificed in the uh, holy sacrifice of the Mass, the true blood which can redeem mankind from their sins, not the blood of animals which has no sacramental effect upon the salvation of mankind. That's a great point. Well, Reverend Father, something else I, I wanted to get to before we before we draw the program to a close is this idea, Father Jenkins, you, you've talked about this before, where there's there seems to be a, a theme among the uh, the mysteries of the rosary. And if you if you look closely at, at each of the fourth mysteries of the, the joyful, the sorrowful, and the glorious mysteries, there there is in each of these mysteries some element of carrying something. If we look at the, the fourth sorrowful mystery, you have our Lord carrying the cross to Calvary. Mm -hmm. If you look at the fourth glorious mystery, you have the, the angels carrying the, the body of Our Lady into heaven and her assumption. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this fourth joyful mystery, you have the uh, the carrying of the Christ child to the to the temple. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of that? You know, because we, we read in the uh, in the Gospels about the 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 woman who who is cured by touching even the hem of our Lord's garment. So what what effects must have come about from from Our Lady, from St. Joseph, from Simeon and others, actually carrying the Christ child in, in their arms. What kind of effects must have come from that? <clears throat> what kind of effects? I'm not sure I understand the meaning of the question, Tom, but uh, since you point out the parallels in the fourth mystery, the, four, the fourth mysteries of each set of mysteries, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I see a certain significance in that. As you know, I mean, uh, I've already pointed out that I see in the the third mis the third of each of the mysteries the the crowning right the the, the 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 third joyful mystery the kings coming to offer their crowns to our Lord right and bowing down taking their crowns off and laying their crowns before Him I see in the third sorrowful mystery our Lord being crowned with thorns for us and in the third glorious mystery our Lord crowning the apostles and the faithful throughout time 
with uh, the crowd of fire, right, of the Holy Ghost. And so, yes, it, it shouldn't be surprising, and it certainly isn't surprising to us that we see a pattern in the fourth mysteries of our Blessed Mother carrying our Lord into the temple where she is told that a sword would pierce her heart because of this child. And he would be a sign of contradiction. And uh, then we go ahead to the fourth sorrowful mystery. We see our Lord then carrying the cross. He personally is carried into the temple as a helpless little child. And here he is on the way to Calvary, a grown man. Now we know with the powers of God. And yet he has rendered himself so helpless to resist uh, the attacks on him. And he's going there to be nailed to that cross where you see as though the supreme act of helplessness, it seems, right? <clears throat> but then in the fourth glorious mystery, you see the, the actual fruit of the redemption <clears throat> carried out in our Blessed Mother herself. I mean, Our Lady's Assumption of Heaven anticipates the general resurrection <clears throat> of uh, all mankind, but Our Lady's flesh was not subject to corruption. And so there are only two physical bodies in heaven right now, the body of Our Lord Himself and the body of Our Lady. And the angels carry her body, her virginal and pure body, to join Our Lord Himself in heaven. Um, because her body was never touched by sin. And uh, the, as we say, as they say, not even the shadow of sin was in her. <clears throat> and so we see a certain progression in these fourth mysteries, you know, of uh, the Savior entering the temple in the arms of his mother because he's not yet able to walk and carry himself. And then in the fourth sorrowful mystery, he is carrying the cross of the sins of all mankind. And finally, you know, he sends his angels then to carry the the absolutely pure body of Mary into heaven, they bring her their body and soul. Uh, you might say, um, you know, after our Lord himself, she is the first, well, she really is the first fruits of his redemption because he did not redeem himself, but he did redeem her in a unique and very special and very powerful way. And so uh, the significance of Our Lady ascending into heaven or being assumed into heaven uh, personally, I, th I think it should spell to us the sense of great joy of God calling her and what it meant to her to realize that now was the time that, that our, her son was calling her to the glory of heaven, finally. Um, and she realized, you know, in the context of her carrying him into that temple where the, the, this had brought her now to the point where now she would be carried by the angels into heaven. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a connection there. Well, and Father Greenwald, though, that has some good thoughts. Can I just say one more thing? Yes. Uh, I believe, this is my own personal thought, that this fourth joyful mystery is the mystery of the elderly. Because it is here that, our, that the Blessed Virgin Mary hands the Christ out to Simeon and to Anna. Even later in Christ's life, when Mary Magdalene goes to grab him after his uh, resurrection, he says, Do not touch me. But, I mean, the Blessed Virgin Mary was very discriminant about who she would hand uh, her divine son to. And I think it is this, for that reason, the old Simeon, the old Anna, that this is a mystery of the rosary which should delight all the elderly in that God respects and, in a certain way, 
gives his blessings to the elderly. That's what I think every time I pray this mm-hmm. mystery of the rosary, his love for the elderly, his respect for the gray hairs, as Scripture says. Well, thank you, Father. <laughs> we elderly people appreciate that. Do you think that Anna and Simeon also represented, in a special way, the Old Testament, though? The, the, the receiving the fulfillment of those centuries and centuries of waiting so patiently. I think that's very applicable because the uh, Christ is the, is there for the new, the completion of the old, St. John the Baptist being the link. I, I've never thought of that, but I think that's a very good application of it. Hmm. All right. Well, Reverend Fathers, I'd like to thank you both for being here tonight. There's certainly a lot, a lot more that, that could be said about this fourth joyful mystery of the presentation, but we got through a lot, so I'd like to thank you both for our time. Thanks, I, uh, I, I, I appreciate it, and I know all of our viewers do as well. So thank, thank you both. Thank you, Tom. I'm greatly uh, pleased to have Father Greenwell join us, and I hope that... Uh, be joining us on a regular basis here. Definitely. That'd I would be love great. To. That'd be great. Well, thank you both. Thanks to, you. thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>